Good morning, everyone. Um, like Adam said, uh, my name is Anthony. Uh, my wife, Sarah, and I are members here at HCC. Been here since about um, 2016, 2017. Um, and now um, joined as college students, and now we have the privilege to serve alongside Campus Collective staff on Tuesday nights. Uh, so I was thinking about, most of you probably don't know me um, well, and if there was something that I had uh, to share with you about myself, a defining characteristic, it would be that I lose things all the time, constantly. Um, before my wife and I leave the house, most days I'm scrambling around trying to find phone, trying to find keys, trying to find my wallet. Um, Sarah didn't know that when we got married, she also signed up to be a detective. Um, this is past week, lost a hat, one of my favorite hats, checked the same laundry basket four times, um, couldn't find it, just gave up, thought the hat was gone. The next day, Sarah sends me a picture while I'm at work, found the hat in the laundry basket, same place. So I, I tell you that this morning because our text this morning, Luke chapter 15, so if you have your Bibles and you want to go ahead and turn there, um, if you've ever lost something, you, you've probably experienced the, the joy, the, the elation, the relief that comes with it uh, when you find it, um, the, the celebration that happens. Uh, and so this morning, uh, we have a God who, not like us, not forgetful, not losing things arbitrarily, but who is seeking after those who have purposefully separated themselves from him. So as you're turning there, you probably notice one of the headings in Luke 15 is the parable of the prodigal son. And that's a very familiar passage. Everybody from the Rolling Stones to C.S. Lewis have written about the parable of the prodigal son. It's everywhere in our culture. It seems like we can't get enough of it. And sometimes, uh, with a familiar passage, we, we kind of have the tendency to, to tune out, especially if we've grown up in a church context and think that we know um, everything that the Bible has to say about a given topic. But I wanted to challenge you this morning to, to press in, to kind of lay aside any presuppositions and ideas that you might have, um, because I think this morning in Luke chapter 15, we're going to see something of the gospel that maybe we missed not a new gospel, not a different gospel, uh, a facet of Jesus' mercy for us and his love for us that we might have missed. Uh, one author puts it this way, that one of the signs that you may not grasp the unique, radical nature of the gospel is that you are certain that you do. So most of us know this story. We could probably tell this story in our sleep. And Jesus paints this beautiful picture of a, of a lost son who, who comes back home and this gracious father who throws this big party, this big celebration. Some of us, that might be where our knowledge of the story kind of stops. Uh, what we forget is that there's two more parables that are connected, uh, that there was a wider audience. Jesus was speaking to two specific groups of people for a specific reason. And there's also a conclusion, an epilogue, if you will, that we forget. So let's read this passage in its entirety. I'll pray, and then we'll unpack it. So Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. 
And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hands and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came... Who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much this morning for your word. Thank you for this good news of your grace and your mercy to uh, religious and 
sinful people alike. Lord, we just praise you this morning. We just ask that you would overcome any deficiencies or limitations or anything in my ability to preach this passage, Lord, and, and that people would leave here celebrating, worshiping you, God, that you would be glorified, that you uh, would speak to us this morning from your word. You've promised that it doesn't return void. So we love you, and it's in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. So in our time this morning, as we unpack Luke 15, I really just have three points that I want to make to you. Um, the first would be the framework of the parables. Uh, why is Jesus telling this? If we don't understand the why he's telling us, the rest of it falls apart. The second point is that we have a God who seeks the lost, and he also seeks the individual. And the third point, the gospel. It's point number one, the framework for the parables. Look with me at verses one through three. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. So Luke clues us in. There's two audiences that Jesus is interacting with. He's coming into contact. The first audience are the the tax collectors, the sinners. Luke tells us that they're drawing near to Jesus. They can't resist hearing what this man has to say. He's preaching repentance, preaching forgiveness, and they want in on it. So tax collectors, if you're familiar with history, those would have been the Jews who were loyal to the occupying Romans. These were the rebels, the traitors. These were people who had given up their countrymen so that they could make a profit and so that they could have a comfortable, easy life. They were hated, rejected by the rest of Jewish society for how unfair they treated their neighbors. The sinners here uh, refers to, to anybody seen as, as lawless, non-Jews, uh, irreligious, uh, those who had little regard for Jewish law or God in general. And so that, that group, the tax collectors, the sinners, rebellious, traitors, lawbreakers, they're coming and they're, they're seeing how kindly this man speaks to the lost. They're hearing this, this good news and they, they want in on it. This is the other audience that Luke clues us in, Pharisees, scribes. Pharisees would be the religious elite, uh, strict religious teachers who prided themselves on just how much they could conform their lives to, to, the, to the moral Jewish law, uh, their outward acts of piety. They wanted to be seen by everybody. In fact, they were even known to, to take the law and add more to it. They didn't think it was strict enough. They would add more commands than God himself had commanded in the first place. Scribes, similar group. They were the interpreters of the law. And if you're familiar with the Gospels at all, you know that Jesus often comes into contact uh, in conflict with both of them. So the religious, the moral, the rigid law keepers, they're repulsed by Jesus. Luke uses the word grumble. He says they're grumbling and they lay this charge against Jesus. They say this man receives sinners and eats with them. They couldn't believe that this teacher, this holy man, this man who claimed to be the Messiah of Israel, would concern himself and spend all this time around tax collectors and sinners. Before we go on, I just want to meditate this morning on what a... If I had to title the sermon anything, that's all I would title is that Jesus, this man, receives sinners and eats with them. How, how beautiful of a charge is that? Jesus, right? God 
in the flesh. Holiness in a human body. The creator, the sustainer of the universe is wanting to be so near to broken and lost humanity, to be so intimate with them. He's sharing a meal, one of the most intimate things you could do. It puzzled religious people. Just celebrate how beautiful that is. I pray that we are a church that proclaims that good news, that Jesus receives sinners and eats with them. So it blows the religious people's mind. And so they're grumbling, Luke says in verse 3, leads Jesus to tell these three parables. So the second point is that God seeks the, the individual and the lost. And we have these first two parables, they're very similar. So first, look with me in verse 4 through 7. Uh, he tells them about this man who owns a hundred sheep. And he leaves them all in order to go find the one sheep that's lost. He finds that sheep carries it back, has a big party with his friends. Verse 4 says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he is found, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Second parable, he tells them about this woman who loses one of her 10 coins and she turns her whole house upside down in order to find it. Verse 8, or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So before we unpack that, just kind of a side note we need to understand about parables. Parables are not allegories. Um, Allegory would be where every single thing in the story represents something else. It's not necessarily the case with parables. Jesus used parables to illuminate usually one singular truth. So we don't have to go through here and pick apart every single detail, like what's the open country in the shepherd's parable? What's the lamp in the parable of the woman? What we can say, it's safe to say, is that based on the audience, so the the tax collectors, the sinners, the Pharisees, the scribes, based on what we have from the other scriptures where God's often referred to as a shepherd or he's characterized of having this great concern over the lost is that Jesus is trying to draw our attention to, to narrow in and say something about God and his concern for lost people. So the shepherd and the woman both do something incredible. Did you, did you catch the extreme language that Luke used? So the shepherd leaves his 99 perfectly fine sheep in order to find one dumb lost sheep. Jesus says in a very matter-of-fact way, what man of you having 99 sheep wouldn't leave them? Counterintuitive. This woman makes this huge deal out of finding one lost coin, even though she's got nine other perfectly fine coins she could spend. All the sheep and all the coin contribute are their lostness, yet their owner is concerned with their rescue. They are precious to them. What Jesus is trying to draw our attention to is that God is concerned with finding lost individual sinners. Think about it. If you've ever lost your keys or a wallet or a pet or maybe a child, uh, 
hopefully not that one, but maybe. Couldn't find them hanging up posters. You, you celebrated whenever you, you found that thing that was precious to you. It was important. What Jesus is, is drawing the parallel here between God and his creation is that God makes a huge, huge deal out of finding his lost creation, those created in his image who have strayed away. Some of you this morning need to think of the lengths that God is going to to rescue some of you. Right? Maybe there's absolutely no way that you would ever be in a church this morning. But that one friend, that one co-worker, they just kept pestering you, pestering you over and over and over. And you're here, and you're hearing the gospel. As we'll see in a second, think about the ultimate length that God went. He came himself in Jesus to live a perfect life in your place and to eventually die to bridge that gap between him and us. God wants to rescue lost individual sinners. Verse 7 and verse 10, Jesus repeats that just like this man and his sheep and this woman and her coin, heaven erupts in celebration over just one sinner who is found, one individual sinner who repents of their sin and trusts in Christ. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Sarah and I got to go to a uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers game. Uh, not a big football guy, probably not most of you know me, I'm not a big sports guy, but Tom Brady was there. Uh, our, Tom Brady, arguably one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play football, one of the most powerful celebrities now. So Walk into this stadium. I've got my binoculars on. I'm like, all right, I'm going to see Tom Brady. This is incredible. So I'm, I'm searching. I'm scanning. I find him a few times. I focus in on him. Watched him, even when he was on the bench, more than I watched the rest of the game because I was just like, Tom Brady, I'm going to tell everybody about this. Have to report back that I can assure you Tom Brady had absolutely no idea that I was there. Um, nor any of the other 60,000-plus fans screaming his name. Tom Brady was not rejoicing over the fact that we were there. He had other concerns. He had a game to play. He had money to make. And to put that in perspective, think about Christ. The most powerful, the most good, the most holy, the one who knows everything, uncreated by, by anything, holding everything together right now with his power, the one that all of history is heading towards and that one day every single person is going to bow down and worship, seeking you, cares about you. You're not just a face in a crowd to Jesus. Jesus wants to have a personal relationship with you. He wants to rescue you from your sin, wants to carry you back to the Father and make a big deal out of you. Some of you need to hear that this morning. He literally, like the woman with the coin, turned the house upside down by going to the cross and being torn apart under God's wrath for you. Why? Because he delights in you. He wanted to rescue you, not because of anything that you've done, not because of anything that you could contribute, but simply because it brings him joy. He gets joy from loving you, from rescuing lost individual sinners. So point number three, final point, the gospel. This is the famous uh, prodigal son story. So Jesus is taking the concepts from the other two. He's zooming in on them, 
more clarity. Verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. Verse 15, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So Jesus' final picture in Luke 15 is this picture of a man with two sons. Oftentimes when we think of the parable of the prodigal son, we think of the one son. This parable, most commentators and authors would argue, would more fairly should be titled the parable of the two sons, not just the one. So in those days, it would have been a big deal. A son would get an inheritance from his father when the father died. It'd be divided up. So the youngest son, he comes to the father and he says, Dad, I would like to have all of your gifts now. I would like to have all of that inheritance that's coming to me when you died. If you could go ahead and fork that over. Most commentators would agree. Essentially, what he would be saying in this culture is, I would rather you be dead. Um, I don't want to wait. I'd rather just kind of have all those benefits that I get from you. Thank you, please. And we, we know that that's the case because the Father gives them to him. So he, he wants to enjoy all the good gifts without having to acknowledge his Father's existence. So the Father gives him the inheritance, and the Son leaves. He sets out all by himself. We see he's not wise with the Father's gifts. He wastes it. He's reckless. He loses absolutely everything. He has to go work on this pig farm. He's starving, just hoping somebody will throw him some scraps. He's lost everything. Bottom of the barrel. The wit's end. So if we've been tracking with Jesus' logic through the other two parables, then it's safe to say that this father represents God and the younger son, many of us. Humans, we do the same thing the son did, and we've done it ever since the garden, since Genesis. We want God's good gifts, but we don't want the giver. We want to enjoy the world he's created. We want to flourish in it. We want to live this life, this gift that he's given us, but we want to live it on our own terms, how we see fit. We don't want to acknowledge God for who he is, if we're honest with ourselves. He's our father, and if he's our father, he's our authority. He has the say in our lives. Not only is he our authority, he's better than earthly fathers in that he is the perfect father. He wants to care for you, to know you Intimately, So he has all authority. He wants to care for you. He knows you. He knows what's best. But in our sin, we suppress that truth and want to go and enjoy the gifts without worshiping or giving allegiance to the giver. Some of us are probably just like this son this morning. We've taken all of God's gifts, fill in the blank, whatever that is for you. You've taken them and you have ran straight into the ground with them. And now... You're dried up, you're starving spiritually, you're at your wit's end, 
You're spiritually bankrupt. You have nowhere else to go, and you need to be rescued. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So this son, he snaps out of it. He comes back to his senses. He's like, this is madness. Why am I doing this? Why did I do any of this? I had a father back home that I knew he loved me. I knew he was good. I know for a fact that he takes care of people who belong to him. What, what have I done? I'm going to go back to him. I'm going to admit what I've done. And then he says, he'll, he'll say to him, treat me like one of your servants. I'll go back. I'll get to work. And I will have a place again. Some of us, be honest, you're there right now. You've seen the consequences of your sin. You felt the sting of guilt. You know you've been around church long enough. You've heard the gospel and, and Bible things preached that, that you know God is good. You know there's a good God and he wants to restore you. So what do we do? We start rehearsing our speeches, just like this younger son. We've got it all planned out, right? I've done X amount of bad things, so I need to do X amount of good things. Those two will balance out, and I'll be restored. Over time, I'll finally be okay with God again. He'll forget all the bad stuff I did. The statue of limitations will expire, and I'll have done enough good stuff that me and God will be on good terms. You're thinking inside, it is time to get to work. But I love that Jesus flips this parable on its head. People are probably pressing in the Pharisees, the scribes, the tax collectors, the sinner. What's going to happen next? Like, like he's going to go back. He's going to work. It's going to be a happy ending because he earned his way back. But, but Jesus completely flips their expectations. Verse 20. And he, the younger son, arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The father sees the son before the son can even get all the way back. Luke uses the language, a long way off. And then the father takes off running. Some of you have probably grown up in context where you feel like you have to meet God halfway, right? That I, I get back to God and, and then grace kicks in, right? God helps those who help themselves, right? No, that is a lie straight from the pits of hell. Before this rebellious, wasteful, reckless, dirty son can even make it back to the father, the father is already taking off towards him. He grabs him and he kisses him. He's not even afraid that he's filthy and covered in all of this junk. He's not afraid of the dirt. The truth here is that Jesus didn't come for people who have their act together. He came for the messy, people who are covered in filth, the far off, the stumbling. Verse 21, and the son says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. 
For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So the son's made it back. He's in his father's arms. And what's he do? He starts in on this speech. He's like, I'm really going to beat myself up, let my dad know I really mean it. And then hopefully in his mercy and his compassion, he'll let me back into the family. Look at the father. It's like he doesn't even hear what's going on. He's not even aware of all of the junk that the son's bringing back with him. He's not keeping a record. He doesn't know about all the rebellion. He doesn't know or acknowledge the squandering. He calls for his best robe, a ring, and shoes. His things that he owns, and he gives them lavishly to this son. The father clothes the son. Another truth for us here is that when you come to Christ, you have to know that you are clothed in his righteousness. All of your filth gets transferred to him. He goes, bears it away, and you are clothed in his righteousness. God then sees you as though you had no sin. Just like this father doesn't even let the son get started on his speech. God is not up in heaven keeping a record of your wrongs, waiting for the hammer to fall the minute you mess up, or waiting to to rub your nose in the things that you've done until you feel really, really bad for it. Then what's the father do? He calls for the best calf they had, the one they'd been saving for a feast. He's making much of the son that was dead, that's alive, who was lost, who's found. That is exactly what Christ does for those who come to him. Your filth for his righteousness. There's an exchange that happens. Now, most of us, that's where the story stops. And a lot of times that's where sermons stop, books stop on this. Uh, and, And I don't think that's really fair because that's not where Jesus stops. Remember the audience, the whole point that Jesus is even telling this parable in the first place. Who was doing the grumbling? The Pharisees, the scribes. There's another son. There's an older son, verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf. Because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So the other son, the one who who didn't ask for all the inheritance, who didn't screw up. He's outside. He's in the field. he's, He's working. He's doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing. And he hears this big party going off in the house. Servant comes out, tells him what's going on, and he's just in complete unbelief. I I can't believe this. This, He's back. He was reckless, and now they're having a party for him. So he refuses to go in, just like the scribes, just like the Pharisees. He didn't want to celebrate what the Lord was doing. The truth here for us is that oftentimes cold, dead, dutiful religion is offended at the audacity 
of the gospel. How could such radical grace be given to people who made such tremendous mistakes? Right? They haven't done anything. The son, younger brother, he didn't do anything for the father to love him again. So what's the father do? The father comes outside to the older son. And he tries to get him to come back in, but he's just so mad he can't see past it. He starts, it's almost like he forgets that this is his father he's talking to. He starts using slave and master language. He says, all these years I've done exactly what you said to do. I never disobeyed you, but you've never gave me a party. You've never celebrated all the work that I've done or made much of me. But then this guy, right? he doesn't even call him his, his brother or son. He says, this son of yours comes home, wastes everything, lives with prostitutes. You give him a party. You give him the best, best calf. Dad, what gives? But then look how gentle the father is to him. He still calls the angry brother son. He tells him he is every bit his son as the other brother. And that he has everything, no doubt The father would have thrown a party for the older brother, too. He tells him right now, it's fitting that we throw this party, that we celebrate. We thought your brother was dead. He's back. What's Jesus doing here? The Pharisees and the scribes are probably pausing and thinking, I think he might be talking about us. Jesus is so kind here. He's urging the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious, the quote-unquote, the good, to look inside They're so mad that their obedience and rule-keeping is not met with celebration. Some of us are the same way. We might not be the younger brother, but we might be the older brother. We get so mad when we see those come to know Christ who have wrecked their lives with sin. We we profess to believe the gospel, but we don't believe the gospel can really go that far, right? No way. They don't deserve it. They've been so stupid. They aren't like me. I really love God because I obey him. I do everything he says. Why aren't people making much of me for that? Why aren't they having a party for me? The truth here Jesus is trying to get at is that God is not interested in dutiful, dead, cold obedience. But he wants broken hearts. What's ironic, uh, one author points out, is that for all of his claiming to have it figured out and obeying all the commandments that the the older brother is actually breaking several of the Ten Commandments. He's dishonoring his father by questioning his his willingness to forgive such sinner. What are you doing? He's jealous and coveting. He can't have the party with his friends like the other guys get to have. And what's revealed from his heart is that Maybe the younger brother went and messed everything up, but the older brother's just been obeying the father the whole time to get something out of him. The younger brother wanted the gifts and not the father. The older brother's the same way. He just went about it differently. He's just as lost and in need of the father's mercy as the first son, if not more so, because he doesn't even realize how lost he is. At least the first son was broken over it and knew he had a problem. This is where the gospel kicks in for us. Remember that the father calls them both son. It's the father who moves towards both of them. He runs to meet and embrace the dirty, reckless son. He leaves the party and the celebration to entreat and welcome the quote-unquote good son. 
what we see here is that the gospel is for good, church-going, rule-following, upright, religious people. And that the gospel is for reckless, wicked, squandering, wasteful people at their wit's end. The only question for us is, which son are you? There's not different degrees of loss. There's just lost in different ways. Some of us are living in here in need of mercy. You're asking, can God forgive me for the things that I've done in my life? I'm so ashamed. I'm so broken. I know I've looked in all the wrong places. And you're that first son. You're lost in your reckless living. The gospel's for you. Some of us sit in a church pew every Sunday, completely oblivious to how lost we are. We think God owes us something because we've lived a moral, upright life. We read the Bible plans, we sing the songs, we pray the prayers, we listen to K-Love, and we shake our heads at those poor, pitiful people who just can't seem to get their lives together and be as moral as we are. We think that in some way God is pleased with all that tireless slaving away and that finally that's going to justify us. That we'll be able to point to that long list of all the things we did and say, look, God, don't you love me for all of my obedience? I didn't really want to do it, but I did it because you said to. We are the second brother lost in our self-righteousness. The gospel is for us. The truth here from the entire chapter is that Jesus welcomes tax collectors, sinners, Pharisees, and scribes. At the bottom of it all, Jesus welcomes lost, sinful people. And some of us might be thinking, how though? How on earth could God forgive me? How could he forgive all the times that I've blatantly rebelled against him and slapped him in the face? All the willful sinning that I've done. How can he forgive my self-righteousness, my reliance. I know I'm the, the second brother. How can I know? Or some of the cynical among us might be thinking, ha, you see, you Christians outside of the Bible talk about wrath, you talk about hell, but Jesus doesn't even mention atonement for sin in one of his most famous stories, right? There is no, there's no wrath. Jesus didn't even need to die on the cross. He doesn't mention it here. God will accept me just the way that I am. Both of those Wrong questions need to be answered with the gospel. What did the father do as part of welcoming his son home? What is he trying to invite the older son to see and partake of? He's killed something. Something has died. He's killed a fattened calf for them to celebrate. The truth is, is that God can welcome you back and still be completely just Because your sin has already been dealt with. There has been wrath and hell. It just hasn't been put on you. The father, the lost sons, the fatted calf, they all point us to the gospel, where it's God who behaves in a prodigal way. It's a weird word, right? Prodigal. We don't think about what prodigal means. We just, it's kind of the title of the story, so we just go with it. Prodigal, according to the dictionary, means recklessly spendthrift, to be willing to spend everything that you have, to be lavish, to be extravagant, to not care how much it costs you. If you keep reading, Luke's gospel does not stop here. It 
goes and it ends in a cross. A cross where a son is killed, separated from his father, so that lost sinners can be restored and forgiven. God was willing to empty himself in the gospel, was willing to be prodigal for you, willing to empty himself of all of his glory, the most shameful death imaginable. So the gospel should feel radical, that God would spend all of that to rescue just one sinner. It's true. God loves you. And he was willing to bankrupt himself of all of his glory for you. So I want to invite the band back up. Um, Luke 15 is, is the perfect reminder at, at Christmas time of what we get to celebrate in the, the incarnation and the birth of Christ. All of us have sinned in some way, whether it was, it was blatant and reckless and willful or self-righteously and religiously. And then we've all tried to work our way back. But the gospel says that the father moved toward us like the father in the story and sent his own son, not like these two sons, not reckless, not self-righteous, a perfect son who, unlike either of those, perfectly delighted in the father at all times when we couldn't, perfectly delighted to obey, never strayed. And then that son, Jesus Christ, willingly went to the cross for you where he was slaughtered and torn apart under the wrath of God for all of your sin, your recklessness, your self-righteousness. And now because of that sacrifice, your heavenly father can welcome you back in open arms and celebrate over you. Believe that this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel your mercy towards us, Lord, uh, towards the Pharisees and towards uh, reckless people. Lord, we, we worship you and, and just pray that uh, if anyone in this audience this morning uh, is not, not believing that, not running to you, knowing that you'll embrace them with open arms, Lord, no matter which side, which son they find themselves in, that they will, that you will embrace them, Lord. Um, so just pray that you would be magnified right now as we sing. And it's in your name, Jesus. Amen.